This is your host, Slada, and I am joined by my two co-hosts today, Aisha A and Aisha H. How are you ladies doing? Alhamdulillah, really excited. <laughs> yeah, good. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. I think everyone's pumped for this episode. <laughs> Definitely. And the reason we're pumped is because we have a special guest today. We are joined by Sheikha Maryam Amir. How are you, Sheikha? Alhamdulillah, an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. We are, yeah, we're like all talking over each other. We're so excited. <laughs> it's been... Talking over all yeah. of you. No, no, alhamdulillah. And um, we have been, um, I've been following your work for like a long time. I've been seeing you speak in the community for a long time. And alhamdulillah, I was able to, I think because of you, I, I will say this, that like I was able to envision a role for women in scholarship, um, seeing you speak, alhamdulillah. Um, and yeah, we've all been like following your content online also. I know you've been doing a lot, um, especially on Instagram um, lately, alhamdulillah. Um, but what we are talking about today is um, women's relationship with the deen with seeking knowledge and especially with the Quran, uh, because it's one thing to say that, you know, we should improve our relationship with the Quran, but then there's all th- these like practical obstacles and barriers that can sometimes um, come into that. But before we get into the topic, I want to first just introduce Sheikha Maryam for anybody who does not know her, um, but she received her master's in education from UCLA and a bachelor's degree in Islamic studies from Al-Azhar University. Um, and she also studied in Egypt, memorized the Quran and has researched a variety of religious sciences ranging from Quranic exegesis, Islamic jurisprudence, prophetic narrations and commentary, women's rights within Islamic law, and more for the past 15 years, mashallah. Um, and she actively hosts women who have memorized Qur'an from around the world to recite and share their journeys through her Into the Revelation series and the Four Mothers campaign, which inshallah we'll talk about later as well. Um, and Sheikh Maryam's focus in the fields of spiritual connections, identity actualization, social justice, and women's studies have humbled her the opportunity to lecture throughout the United States and the world, including in Jerusalem, Mecca, Medina, Stockholm, London, Toronto, and more. And she holds a second degree black belt in Taekwondo and speaks multiple languages. MashaAllah. Um, so she is multi-talented <laughs> and we are talking about uh, yeah, a few different areas of your um, expertise today also, inshallah. But first, I do want to ask you about the topic of female scholarship um, and how we often emphasize the importance of women going into Islamic studies to study the deen for themselves, but then also the importance of having women teaching, um, teaching in the community, the importance of women finding female teachers, even though it's not a requirement, but how it can be very beneficial because, you know, sometimes people um, see this as an unnecessary request and would say that um, the same knowledge can be transmitted from a male teacher um, and that asking for women teachers is just kind of, you know, maybe it, it only stems from like the sense of competition that m- women might feel like with men um, or that it's influenced by like Western feminism. Um, but how would you explain the importance of female scholarship and how would you respond to that contention that um, it's not, you know, as important as we may think it is? When we look back at the society of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the Prophet wasallam was very intentional about ensuring women's access. In fact, we see that from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I'll give you a very powerful example. In the ayah that talks about the shahada of Dain. So you have um, two women witnessing to one man. This verse is actually a very empowering and healing verse for a woman. And this is why. This verse was talking about a societal reality of awareness in which women were not actively involved in financial transactions, mm-hmm. particularly in knowing the lingo. And so to have two random women that are not qualified, who have never been involved in a transaction like this in their life, which was the reality of much of the cultural society of that time, to suddenly come and witness a financial trans- transactions where they need to know the lingo that makes the contract valid. To have both women who've never been exposed to this, excuse me, a woman who's never been exposed to this, she might forget the lingo later on because it's the first time. So God says, bring in another woman so that if one of them forgets, the other one can remind her. 
Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, he says that if it's a society in which women know about these issues, you only need one woman. One woman and one man's testimony is enough. We don't need a second woman if the women are already going to be aware of these issues because this isn't an issue of her intelligence not being strong enough. This is an issue of not having experience in this field, being exposed to it for the first time ever, and maybe in the process of that first time exposure, forgetting the lingo. So have someone else who is on the exact same level because of their exposure, remind each other of that information. However, in another society where women are actively involved in financial transactions, Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah is saying one woman is enough. Why did I mention this in response? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Abu Shuqa, he wrote a book called Tahrir al-Mar'a. MashaAllah, it's a very beautiful book that talks about you know, uh, the Sahabiyats and all the different aspects of women's lives. He mentions that Allah could have chosen not to include women in this conversation by simply saying, have a man and have another man. If you can't find two men, find, wait until you find some later. He could have chosen anything, but God Almighty intentionally brought women into a field in which they were never before. They were not actively involved in this field. And yet, because in that society they weren't, Abu Shaqqa mentions that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inserted them into this field so that women would be present in it. Now, when we look at the society of the Prophet ﷺ, when women asked for a day so that they could have private time with the Prophet ﷺ to ask their questions, I always heard that and I was like, why only one day? Why didn't they ask him for like three days or two days? Why just one? But it wasn't because they didn't have active access. It was actually because they were everywhere, studying all the time, always with the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, which is why we have hundreds of narrations from women, because they were always present. So when they're asking for private time to ask the Prophet wasallam, it's because they don't want to ask around the men, because they're always around when men are asking their questions. And they have private things that they don't want their brothers to hear about. So when we say, you know, why would women need this information from men? And I heard that so much. Women should never give lectures. I didn't grow up seeing a single woman give lectures. Now we see, we hear, we can say Dr. Tamara Gray. We can say Dr. Haifa Yunus. We can say Sheikha Aisha Prime. We can mention these names. And alhamdulillah, we, can, we, we have a list of women now. But when I was growing up, I didn't see a single woman giving lectures. Dr. Ingrid Matson, I knew about her. And I know that there are so many other women who give lectures. But... I, I didn't know them. I didn't see them. And for me, I always heard, well, if a man can give this lecture, then we don't need women to give the same. The problem with saying that is that it didn't give me and so many other women examples of who we can be like. The first one is the representation. It's like, okay, even if I went to study and I came and I had a degree in Islamic sciences, where am I going to go with that? Am I going to teach third grade Islamic school, which is so wonderful. It's a wonderful role, a very important role, but you don't need a degree in Sharia to teach that, to, te to teach third graders. You, you, can, you can have a degree in education, you can study Islam, but where do women who study Islam go? And when we don't have women who have roles that the community creates for them, which is part of Islamic legacy, we all know of the work of Sheikh uh, Akram, Tabarakallah, may Allah bless him, Al-Muhaddithat is an incredible, incredible encyclopedia. But he talks about, for example, the student of Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, Fatima, rahimahullah, and she was speaking on the minbar, not Jumu'ah khutbah, not khutbatul Jumu'ah, but she was speaking on the minbar, giving general lectures, not wearing naqab, not with a barrier, men were there present studying with her. We have this as part of our Islamic legacy. This isn't something new that women who are influenced by certain ideals right now, this is literally part of our legacy from the time of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. Why did we have Umar and Abu Bakr anhuma going to visit Umm Ayman anha as the Prophet wasallam used to do and Umm Ayman anha crying because she missed the Quran. 
She missed the revelation coming from the heavens and causing Abu Bakr Umar radiallahu anhu to cry. Why do we have narrations of Aisha radiallahu anha teaching men, teaching other women? And it, we can discuss the fiqh of how it needs to be done, absolutely. But that is a different conversation from the fact that women have been a part of teaching Islam. Why do we have so many mothers of the believers, radiallahu anhu, all of them who teach our ummah something different, who have narrations from the Prophet When I didn't see women studying, I didn't know who to approach to ask. I asked women who hadn't studied because I didn't know who else to ask. And it led me down a path which now I am grateful for because it allows me to understand the other struggles that women go through because I went through them. But then I hear from women who go through literally my same story, who didn't have the same access and privileges that I did, who left Islam. Women who left the masjid. Women who used to wear hijab, who even used to wear naqab. And now they literally do not associate with Muslims in any way. And... If we blame women without recognizing who is to be held accountable and responsible for that, we expect women to dress a certain way in society, which is not easy in many of our societies. Not just outside, not just from the culture, which tells women to look a certain way and the pressure and the stigma and the judgment. Also internally, women are constantly bombarded with how we should look, how we should act. That impacts us, of course. But where are you going to take that? We m- Many of our communities do not have places of healing. Many of our, of our masajid are not places where women enter and feel like they belong. In fact, many I have heard from women who go outside, who are threatened because of their hijab, who are being spit at. I know a friend of mine was actually spit at. We have women who are dealing with so much discrimination, coming into the masjid, asking to just make one sajda so she can feel like what she's doing is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that she has the support from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because the only reason that she does this is for God. And she walks into a masjid and they literally tell her, go pray in a dressing room in the mall down the street because you are not welcome here. If we are going to know, not have women who understand what women go through, who understand the pain, the discrimination of being a woman in Muslim spaces, to address that reality and look at the fiqh of that reality, how do we expect our ummah to actually change? We can't actively shame and blame and guilt women for the way that women are posting about themselves on social media or acting in certain ways in public, and that is all our conversation focuses on, without also remedying this issue that we have obsessions with, without providing women who understand what they're going through, who've gone through it too, and who can speak to that reality. I've been so fortunate that literally every single one of my teachers who have taught me with support, who have encouraged me to speak, have been men. Every single one of them. Alhamdulillah, now I have women who are my teachers. Now I have women who are my mentors, who are scholars. But when I was going through the process of studying initially, I didn't have that. They were all men who had to work with me to change all the ways that women who hadn't studied taught me I was doing things wrong. I had men who were scholars help me realize that my voice is important and that I had a right to use it. And since having done that, I asked sometimes, even these men, may Allah bless every single one of them, I would ask them a felt question and I would say, well, what about this situation when a woman is going through this on her period? What is she supposed to do? And I've actually had men who are scholars who I'm studying with these issues because they are scholars who teach these issues say, honestly, I've never thought about that. I didn't even know that that actually happens and I've never seen that in a fiqh book. (laughs) Well, you don't have periods, so that makes sense. (laughs) So I think it's helpful when we have women address these issues for obvious reasons. Mm. But also beyond that, it's important for women to have the role modeling Part of being able to change our community is being able to provide in the architecture, in the policies, and in the structure. Women's access and women's representation 
Not because we need equal rep representation and whatever everyone, you know, uses us. It's such lazy usul. It's so lazy to simply say you are just influenced by feminism and that's why you're saying all of these things. I'm like, really? Because literally all I'm quoting are classical scholars from centuries ago who are big fuqaha in the different madhahib. I am saying nothing but repeating their statements. And you are saying that I am a liberal westernized feminist. And you are actually just responding to quotes that are common in the Shafi'i madhab. I don't know if that's a reflection of me or perhaps a reflection of your ignorance. May Allah bless you so much and reward you and protect you and help us all rise. I think the point is that when we see all of these scholars, you know, the greatest scholars, who did they study with? Imam Malik, rahimahullah. He studied with a woman, the daughter of Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, radiallahu anha. Who did Imam al-Shafi'i study with? The granddaughter, the great-granddaughter, Sayyidina Nafisa, radiallahu anha, rahimahullah, of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We have so many men, Ibn Hajar, Ibn Taymiyyah, all of these men have studied from women. So when we say we don't need women to teach, when we have men to teach us, I think what we should say is if these great imams were here today, would they be studying under, under women? Because the reality is that they have. So maybe the question really should be, how can I actively study with women? Yeah, and subhanAllah, I think that this comes up a lot in our discussions with the Qarawin project when it comes to, you know, like our, our exclusive focus is like talking with women, having women writers. Um, and I think that there's like, there's a lot of suspicion around the intentions of Muslim women when they focus on like platforming women and having women teachers. But all of this is evidence for the fact that one, like, I know people do have suspicions about our intentions. Uh, when purely like the intentions of sisters who are working on this stuff is just to please Allah. And like, that's all we want. <laughs> it really is, is just like seeking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that this like, these barriers also come up when it comes to seeking to have an improved relationship with the Quran um, and how it's special, like special barriers are set up to that because the Quran is, yeah, it's like a written word um, that we, you know, we can read it silently. We can read the translation, but there's like this inexplicit, inexplicably tied, like oral aspect of the Quran where it's a heard, you know, uh, medium and it's something that like you you recite out loud that was originally recited to the prophet i said and that he recited out loud before it was ever written down mm -hmm. and that's like that's inextricably linked to the content of the quran um but women are also you know like it's not common for us to even hear women reciting let alone like have women teachers you know teaching us like qiraats and everything um so what is you know kind of the why is it important for us to first of all try to improve our relationship with the Quran and what are the barriers that are set up to women um, that are set up for women in doing that because I know that you have the Four Mothers campaign and you focus on this specifically so what is even the aim behind that? When I was in college I was um, interviewed by a journalist about women in Islam because I was the MSA president and she was doing a piece on Muslims and so she had myself and another woman part of who was part of the MSA be asked about um, people who had memorized Quran and she had been doing some research online and she said, why is it that more men memorize the Quran than women? And my friend was like, oh yeah, more men do memorize the Quran. That's right. There aren't that many women who memorize it. And I was like, da'wah, da'wah, da'wah. This is terrible da'wah. No, like we can't say that. What is she talking? No, like of course there are women who memorize the Quran. But I really sat with that question afterwards and I was like, I can name 10 men in my community, and I'm sure there are so many more who have memorized the Quran that I don't know about, but I can name one woman, maybe two. And since then, alhamdulillah, that has changed because, mashallah, women have been teaching other women. There's like a whole system now of women teaching women. But the reality is that most of us can name many imams or many hafal, but we can't name that for women. Many of us don't have don't have a list of names of women in our communities who we can state that for. And why is that? Is it because women are inherently less interested in memorizing the Quran? Is it because women are inherently less able to memorize the Quran? Or is it because women have less access and less modeling of people who have memorized the Quran? When we look at our communities right now, we are so blessed, many of us, mashallah, we all come from different communities. I know that me and Sara are in California, and uh, mashallah, uh, both Aishas are in the UK. And so this conversation is only reflective of what we see. 
But most of what we have seen, and I've, I've toured through the UK and I saw very similar to what I see here. Um, you know, alhamdulillah, there are many communities that are actively working to create access for women. But I would also say there are many, 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 many more communities that don't have that structure there yet. They're inshallah in the process, but they don't have the structure there yet. And when we look at women who want to memorize the Quran, we generally see that interest coming because of a personal experience that they've had. And now they're looking for a teacher. Where do they find a woman who is a teacher? Sometimes that doesn't exist in their communities. Right now, alhamdulillah, we have online platforms. Alhamdulillah. That didn't exist when I was trying to study. That did not exist. So for me, I had to find women who could teach me because I didn't even know I could study with a man. And when I finally, when I came back from Egypt and I tried to study here, the first woman who I was able to come across, may Allah bless her, and the only teacher who I was able to find, she just didn't have time to teach me. She already had so many other students who were women and I couldn't get on her list. And so she told me to study with someone else who was a woman who didn't have time. And so Alhamdulillah, Allah blessed me with Sheikh Muhib through that process. But why I'm mentioning this is because one, women want to memorize, women want to study, but a lot of times they just don't know where to start. They don't have the access. They don't, they ask and they are told that they can't, they won't be taught. I asked an imam if he would teach me in a group of women. And he said, I don't teach women. And I was like, okay, well, we could like sit in two different rooms. Like we don't need to sit like next to you. Like we're fine with that. You know, we just want to study. And he was like, I don't teach women. And I was like, okay, that's fine. But why doesn't your masjid also have a woman who they have hired to teach? If you're not going to teach women as an imam, then you need to make it a point that you are going to have a woman who is a scholar who will also teach women. Because when we don't see that reflected in the policy, then we also hear as women that it is not important for women to study because we don't even have a place to study. Since starting the Four Mothers campaign, which is basically a campaign that encourages women to recite the Quran, I started this campaign because... 10 years ago, I was working with my Quran teacher and he told me, you need to recite Quran at the welcome banquet. And I was like, Sheikh, I am a woman. And that's not, I was like, Sheikh, come on, you're a Sheikh. You know better. Come on, Sheikh. <laughs> he got so mad at me. He was like, Maryam. Islamic history is filled with women who were scholars, who were Quran teachers, who men t- studied with. Abdul Basit, his teacher was a woman. Like, why would you not recite? Because he's like, if men have a problem, look at the ayah. If men have a problem, look at this ayah. The one who has a disease in his heart, he is the one with the problem. So you need to recite because other women need to see that women can recite. The women who are not Arab recite. And I did that. And then I toured through the UK. And subhanAllah, when I toured through there and I recited Quran and all of these events, I had they were all, all women's events. And each event had like three to four to 500 people attending. So why I'm giving you those numbers is not because anyone knew who I was. Literally no one knew who I was. But it was like, it's not like they were coming out for me. They were coming out because there was an event for women. And they were going out in hundreds and coming and saying, you are the first person I've ever heard recite the Quran. Woman in tears women in their 50s telling me that if they knew that there were women who had recited the Quran, they would have done this from the time they were children. When I started Four Mothers, it was after working with scholars for 10 years on how to set this. Scholars who, subhanAllah, actively told me that it is absolutely permissible for women to recite Quran in public, but our community is not ready for that yet. So for 10 years with these scholars, I've been waiting to see when is the right time. Not because I'm trying to make this whole movement because women need to be Quran reciters like men are Quran reciters. Not like that. Unfortunately, I even have to use that voice. And what's wrong with saying that anyway? What is wrong with saying that anyway? We'll get to that, inshallah. But because when women don't see other women reciting, they don't know that they can. That is why. That is the reason. Because when... I was approached by all these women saying, we've never heard it before. And if I had known, I would have done it too. It made me realize that we just have a problem of access. And so when women started reciting online with me, Alhamdulillah on Instagram, just their recitations, a picture of the Mus'haf with their recitation in the background, the messages that I have received since then, literally hundreds of messages. 
of women telling me that their daughters for the first time ever have said that they want to memorize Quran. That these mothers for the first time ever are reciting Quran to their children. Where do we think Quran comes from? If women are not memorizing Quran and they're not teaching their children and they don't have access easily, what happens to the next generation? We have young women who in their 20s, they've told me that they were in their teens starting to recite Quran, excited about it, passionate about it. They were told now at 13, 14 that it was no longer halal for them to do this. They were so angry and hurt because they loved reciting Quran. They stopped reciting. They, they took this rage and went the complete opposite direction. And they didn't open a mushaf in a decade. And since the campaign that they've seen on Instagram, they've started reciting Quran again. They've started changing in the way that they have particular habits and particular routines and particular behaviors because of their relationship with the Quran starting over. Women who told me they were professional singers or in their choir in their high school who are now using that same beautiful voice for Quran instead. It is so powerful to see. I went to an event. It was just for elementary and middle school kids. And mashallah, this event, they brought in mega speakers. They brought in Mesut Curtis, Jay Dean. Like we're talking about like mega nasheed singers who have like a huge presence, especially amongst youth, mashallah. And they were singing and like, you know, the whole, they're all, you know, kids, elementary school, middle school, they're all like clapping. They're excited. Beautiful nasheeds, beautiful, beautiful program, mashallah. And they asked me to just give a talk about Quran. I mean, I'm like, you want me to give a talk about Quran in the middle of Nasheed singers? Like, I'm, there's, no one's going to listen to me. They have, I'm not going to listen to me. I want to listen to the Nasheed. So I give this talk and I recited Quran as part of the talk. And subhanAllah, the feedback that I got from the mothers of little girls was my daughter's favorite part of this program was Mommy, I really like that girl who recited Quran and I want to do that too. And that just brings me to tears. That just brings me to tears because when you look at books of fiqh, you see when you have these issues so that they talk about women and, and they say, how can we say that women shouldn't be in these spaces because we have these mothers. How can we say that woman's primary responsibility is to raise children and to raise the next part of our ummah, but we're not going to give access to those women to have the knowledge to raise those children? We blame women and shame women and guilt women, and we don't give women the tools to uplift women. I'm so grateful that this campaign has had so much support, especially for men who are scholars and from women who are scholars. And I've been so fortunate and humbled to interview women from around the world. Women who are Quran reciters in their countries, in Malaysia, in Indonesia, in Singapore, in Morocco, in Algeria, in Tunisia. Women who tell me, you might not have this in California. It might not be the norm in California, but in Morocco, women recite the Qur'an. Women are actively encouraged to recite the Qur'an. Women are actively participating in competitions with men. Women win over men. Women recite on TV. Women recite in masajid. Women recite in conferences. Women recite on Instagram and on TikTok. And it's normal and it's accepted. And it's part of their culture. And that's why they have so many women who are memorizers of the Qur'an. When I started interviewing women, I have, I have, I have so many women who are on queue, waiting in line to be a part of the Instagram series. And they're all from Morocco and Algeria. And they are all women who memorize the Quran with Sanad, with Qiraat. Every single one of them has won in competitions and recite on TV. This is their culture. They are in, in droves of numbers. And when I spoke, I recently interviewed a whole classroom. You can see it on Instagram, at the Miriam Amir. There is 
a sheikha who is teaching Qur'an in this class of young men and women who are in college. And one after another, they are coming up and they are reciting after her and they are reciting together. And I asked her, like, this is so beautiful. I've never seen such passion in so many numbers of Qur'an here in California. Mashallah, we have people who are invested in Qur'an, but I've never seen something like this. And she told me, this is so common here. This is what it looks like as part of our culture. For me, women in Qur'an, it should look like this. We should have 60 women in a class and that's our normal numbers. Women who come with their children, women who come alone, women who are disabled, women who are going through depression, women who are domestic violence survivors. We should have women who go through all of this all studying the Quran together because the Quran changes our life. The reason the Quran was revealed was literally to transform us. Our ummah has been successful. Do you know why Salahuddin, rahimahullah, what they say about his time? What was one of the things that aided in the success of Salahuddin? It was women who are connected to the Quran who taught their children the Quran. One of the things my sheikh says is when you are pregnant and you're reciting Quran, and then when you're nursing and you're reciting Quran, children are being nourished. They're literally being created with a lifeline to Quran. If we had an entire ummah of women who were intentional about the relationship with the Quran, we would literally be an army. Of course, spiritually. Of course, I'm talking spiritual army. We'd be a spiritual army. And to see that in just less than a year since this campaign started last Ramadan, I've literally had hundreds of women say they have now enrolled in a Quran class. They are now memorizing the Quran for the first time. Their daughters are memorizing the Quran with them for the first time. They have started praying when they weren't praying before. They've started wearing hijab when they didn't used to before. That is the power of giving women access to the Quran. So when you say, oh, this is just about Western liberal feminism, fine, give women an alternative. Because this wasn't born out of wanting women to be in spaces to take men out of them. This was born out of the fact that women didn't have alternatives. So if you have an issue, provide women with alternatives and see the shift. The problem when we look in fiqh, not the problem, this isn't a problem. The, the opinion of women not reciting Quran in public comes from an interpretation of one ayah. That ayah has so many different interpretations. Subhanallah, Imam Suyuti has a different interpretation from Al-Qurtubi, uh, from Imam Al-Qurtubi. He has a different interpretation from Imam Al-Baghawi. And some of them overlap, but you can't take one interpretation. And there's no ahadith that support this. In fact, when the woman, when the Prophet ﷺ passed by a woman who was reciting in her home in Medina, and she, she was reciting Surah Al-Ghashiyah, the very first ayah, he heard it and he was so emotionally impacted وسلم, by hearing this ayah. He didn't say, oh, she's a woman, she shouldn't be reciting. I shouldn't be emotionally impacted by a woman's recitation. And listen, it is a what is an obligation on the Prophet وسلم, if there, excuse me, it is an obligation on the Prophet وسلم, if there is a woman, excuse me, if there is something that is haram, he has to say that it's haram. He has to, he is the law, he's a legislator. And subhanAllah, the only thing that we have that makes women's recitation in public spaces haram is based in an interpretation of one, one interpretation of the ayah and said al which is closing the door to fitna. Closing the door to fitna is the biggest reason why scholars do not allow for women's recitation. And subhanAllah, Sheikha Hajar al-Haniti, she's one of the women that I interviewed. It's, a, it's an interview in Spanish. She's from Spain. She left her dreams of becoming a doctor so that she could study in Morocco and come back and establish the first institute in Spanish to teach people who speak Spanish, Muslims who are in Spain, Quran. And she is told still, you shouldn't be doing this because you're a woman. Well, no one else is doing it. No one else is doing it. So what do you want her to do? May Allah bless her. May Allah bless her. And she said, this ayah, it says the one who has a disease in his heart. And that's embarrassing if you have a disease in your heart. So may Allah help you. <laughs> she said, we, we pray to Allah to give you shifa. It was so beautiful. The scholars of the past, when we look at Imam al-Baghawi, for example, in the Shafi'i Madhab, excuse me, Imam al-Baghawi, Imam al-Bujayrimi, in the Shafi'i Madhab, 
He puts the responsibility on men to turn away if what? Said of Raya, what? Is if you have a disease in your heart and you are aroused by hearing a woman recite. Not, oh, I'm attracted to the sound of this recitation. It's beautiful. I like this sound. No, if your attraction, like if a man is aroused by her, her recitation, that is a serious problem. If listening to the Quran causes you to be in that state, you do have a disease in your heart. So instead of closing the door for all women to recite, we should do like Ibn, Ibn Muflah al-Maqdisi says, Rahimahullah from centuries ago, that a man should turn away, that is haram to feel the taladhud, the enjoyment of listening to the recitation of a woman. If a man feels this, he should stop listening. He doesn't say, he doesn't close the door for a woman to be the, the ones who stop reciting. When we look at the concept of closing the door to fitna, if the point is to close the door from, women being, from men being tempted by a woman, well, we live in a time where men simply have to drive on the freeway, open their social media, be exposed to any type of fitna. And women are exposed to those exact same type of fitna. And how many times have I heard women saying, I wish that I could be the second or third or fourth, fourth wife of that qari because his voice is so beautiful. Oh, that imam, his voice is so beautiful. I've heard women sexualize Quran reciters. This temptation goes both ways. But even if we were to say that the fitna is greater for men, well, what is the bigger fitna? Women no longer being a part of our communities, women leaving our religion, women feeling they can't connect to the Quran, is that a greater fitna or the potential? The potential fitna, not the, not the reality fitna. The potential fitna of a man potentially hearing a woman's voice, feeling attracted to her, and then doing what with that? Scrolling away? closing the app, walking out of the room, he can take responsible actions versus women not having access and not having role models. And really, if we want to see a change in our ummah, we need to be responsible for creating that change from an infrastructural level. I pray that we will be exposed like the women of Malaysia and Singapore who recite like Abdul Basit, who are not Arab, but whose recitations sound like the Qur'an is being revealed to you in that moment, that they are taught the Qur'an like they are taught sports in school. Ustada, uh, Sheikha, she won't let me call her Sheikha, but she is a Sheikha. She, is a sheikha. she graduated from Al-Azhar and she's a Qariya. Excuse me. Sheikha Atiqa from Singapore. She said that children are taught maqamat, maqamat of Qur'an, putting your, your voice in all these, you know, beautiful ways. And there's a discussion about maqamat, no problem. Beautiful ways. From the time they are children in elementary school, like you study any other field in elementary school. When I interviewed, uh, subhanAllah, when I interviewed Sheikha Warda from Indonesia, she said she was taught maqamat from her father from the time she was like three or five. Like this is normal in their families for little girls to learn from their parents at such a young age. How do your parents teach you that if they haven't studied that? And obviously this is no expectation, no expectation that women, that men need to be everything for their child. You don't need to be your child's Quran teacher and your, your child's, you know, maqamat teacher and your child's access to Quran. You don't need to be all of that. What you need is to have love for the Quran. They need to see you hugging the mushaf. They need to see you reciting and being in love with it. They need to see that while you are trying to put them to sleep, instead of singing nursery rhymes, you're, you're reciting Quran and not because there's a problem singing nursery rhymes. Do that too, no problem. But also do Quran. And that is what we need our children to grow up seeing. So that inshallah our ummah can actually change. Inshallah. And we won't be able to see that until we create those spaces for women to make that change, inshallah. Inshallah. What you were saying, mashallah, so many, um, so much of it resonated for me because I actually grew up um, for part of my childhood. So from the ages of 10 to about 18 in Malaysia. So a lot oh. of this experience, subhanAllah, you know, um, this experience of being turned away from the masjid or women not having a space. When I was growing up, that wasn't the case. Like that in Malaysia, you know, you've got huge halls just as big as the men's side for the women. You know, beautifully yes. architecturally designed with, you know, you know, 
either on the second floor or on the first floor, even the platforms where you can see and hear the imam on the member. And when I was, you know, in, in primary school, actually, my earliest memories of um, Quran classes, for example, was um, our Quran teacher actually happened to be from Iraq. And we would um, we were memorizing, I think, Surah Al-Qalam. And we were all we'd all be st- stood up um, in our seats and as soon as we'd memorize that ayah, you're allowed to sit down. And so he'd walk around between us looking and seeing who would be able to memorize the ayah. And I remember as a child being like, I was about 10 years old being, you know, reciting it with like my whole chest out loud. And we were all like in chorus, you know, we'd do it over and over to memorize this ayah and thinking, I'm doing it right. Why won't he let me sit down? I'm reciting it. <laughs> and then, you know, subhanAllah, as we went into secondary school even. So, um, you know, we were between the ages of 10 and 18. At 11 and 18, sorry. And um, we would then, at that point, uh, be stratified into, you know, our sort of level of ability, for example. So we'd have boys and girls in the higher classes and the small, in the, you know, easier classes, etc. And my Quran class actually happened to be, um, it was all girls. And we would have a male Quran teacher and we would go up to him at the front of the class and we would recite our memorization and he would correct our Quran like there and then. And Alhamdulillah, you know, I'm very privileged, you know, just from hearing the stories from, from you know, various women in the UK and the States and across the Western world, mm-hmm. um, how that wasn't the case for them. And we'd have, you know, in our school, Quran competitions, like you said, of like children, primary school and secondary school, divided upon how much Quran you'd memorize, you know, the one jizat category, the two jizat category, and you'd be tested by a panel of, you know, the Quran teachers at the time, and you'd be sat on the stage and it'd be terrifying. And they'd say, okay, recite this page, start, begin. And, you know, subhanAllah, that was the kind of um, environment that we were brought up in. So, the idea, alhamdulillah, I wasn't brought up with the idea that you weren't allowed to recite as a Muslim woman, for example. Um, so when I came and I heard a lot of these things from social media and talked to from peers and, you know, the fear and the shame surrounding it, it really, really saddened me. And it was also kind of disorientating. Like, where, where's this come from? You know, this isn't right. from the Islamic um, culture or, or history that I have known and learned growing up. And subhanAllah, mm-hmm. what you were saying as well about you know, you expect these women to go on and become mothers and teachers and wives and subhanAllah, you know, know this Qur'an when they've not had any access to it or not had the same exposure. And then you berate them if they're feeling that disconnect because there's never any opportunity or, you know, encouragement to uptake this. And you you sort of left scratching your head thinking, subhanAllah, well, what do you expect people to do? Like, what do you think the natural outcome will be? Absolutely. It's really interesting because like, now I'm thinking about, yeah, like, again, like, Sheikha Mariam, you mentioned, there's this uh, misconception that, like, okay, here we're requesting, you know, like, women's access to this and women's scholarship and all these things because we're influenced by, like, Western liberal feminism. Or there's another misconception also that, that like, Muslims in the West are, like, more enlightened. They've let go of a lot of the backwards cultural baggage right, that, you know, their right. parents brought over. Also terrible. But, yeah. Yeah, no, like, both of them are whack. But, like, for example, like, my family's from Algeria, and, like, all of my aunts there, like, go, that went to, like, Qur'an halaqas, and, like, and the thing is, what's really interesting is that this, there's not, like, a centuries-long tradition in Algeria, at least for, like, last couple of centuries, of, like, women studying the Qur'an. Like, French colonialism ravaged the community. Yes. It disconnected people from their deen. When my mom was a kid, they didn't know hijab was fard. It was something that old women wore because it was a cultural thing. And then she gets to middle school and like has a you know this Islamic studies teacher who's like, guess what? Like hijab is a thing in Islam, and you have this like the whole nahda like Islamic revival. Within a few decades now, you have masajid full of women learning the Quran. So it wasn't yet yeah, there wasn't this like long tradition of them. But as soon as they discovered that Quran is this beautiful thing, the whole community jumped on it. So there's you know there is this like desire for from women to access the Quran. Yes. Um, and there, yeah, that we do still have though these like these misconceptions remain that you know not only sh- like do women you know like have less of a right even to hear the Quran in their own voices, but in general, there's a lot of misconceptions about how Quran contain the how about how Islam contains a lot of like misogynistic practices, um, and this is very damaging for you know for everyone's iman for for men as well who you know feel bad for like the women in their lives, um, and it's hard to imagine okay like why did God legislate for me to be, you know, like treated as inferior? Why did like God legislate for me differently from my brother, even though we both just happen to be born, you know, as, as different genders? Like, what is this? Um, like, what could be the wisdom behind this? So how do we, uh, like, how do we, you know, kind of, I guess, how, how can we be confident in the fact that Islam does not contain misogyny and misogynistic practices? Because even sometimes when we try to combat these things, we are kind of told to like, 
stop, you know, stop trying to reform, stop trying to change the deen from what it is and just accept it as it is. But I, I don't think we should accept that Allah would legislate something that's oppressive, you know, to half of his creation. It's important to recognize that sometimes our, um, the opinions that we're aware of actually are born in a time um, that they, were, they weren't intended to be forever. For example, some scholars made fatawa in a time where they're, like you mentioned in Algeria, there's colonialism. You said Algeria, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there is colonialism. There are actually women who are, may Allah protect everyone, they are being raped they are, you know, th- there's so much violence. And in order to protect women from those realities, they made fatawa truly to protect women of that time. But those fatawa don't, don't hold the same reality as when you're living in safety. Alhamdulillah. You don't need that type of fatwa. And maybe the imams who made them in that time period didn't intend them to be forever. They intended them to be for their particular society when they were facing these issues. When we see in fiqh, there are absolutely statements that you will come across from fuqaha, scholars who we all revere. And we take pause and we look at that and we say, what is that actually supposed to mean? And I'll give you an example. There's a famous mufassir who I love, whose tafsir is amazing. I'm not going to name him, but everyone knows who he is. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give him the highest paradise and honor us with meeting him. There's no way I'm even close to the dirt on his shoes. If I wish, if I could choose between myself and the dirt on his shoes, I would choose to be the dirt on his shoes. Like, tabarakallah. But there is a statement that he made about women when I was doing research on a particular hadith that I really took pause and I was like, this is a very difficult statement to read. And I asked one of the scholars who I was working with. And he said, you know, this imam was going through, and I can't tell you what he was going through because you'll all know who I'm talking about, but it was a very serious political upheaval and he was running for his life. And he said that sometimes, you know, the greatest scholars, they might be, you know, the greatest scholars to take fiqh from or tafsir from in certain areas. But in other areas, they're impacted because they are human beings from the reality of being in a state of constant oppression. And so maybe he's coming up with that fatwa based on the reality or, or that opinion based on the reality of his, of, of his life, not because it's reflective of all of, all of the texts that we see or the maqasid al-sharia or what might be the most applicable in our time. And I think it's really important for us to recognize that because sometimes we say, oh, these male scholars, they were so misogynistic. And that's just... I think that's so wrong and such a disservice to this great scholarship that our ummah has from men. SubhanAllah, yes, women were teachers of men and men were teachers of women. And, and we all teach one another as the Quran says in Surah Tawbah, we are, we are awliya, we are allies of one another, men and women. Literally, Allah literally says men and women are allies of one another, the believing men and women. So when we have that example of men and women who are teaching one another in our history, we have so many men who, you know, spoke on these rulings for women. Many times they are so beautiful and so empowering in even our own societal context from hundreds of years ago. But other times we come across something and we're like, I don't understand how we can apply that to our time. And sometimes, um, sometimes when we look at that, it is based in, um, you know, perhaps the reality that they were going through and they didn't intend it to be forever, or perhaps they did. Maybe they did intend it to be intended to be forever, but they would have maybe changed their opinion if they saw the reality of now. And we can even see that in the discussion of women going to the masjid. When we see, for example, the statement of Aisha radiallahu anha that said, if the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam had seen women in her time period, he would have prevented women from going to the masjid. And that's because of the way women dressed and acted in her time periods, radiallahu anha, after the Prophet وسلم, had passed away. And in his time period, وسلم, he had said, do not prevent the female servants of God from going to the houses of God. But when Abu Shukla looked at that, he said, women in his time period had so much more access to everything from the mall to the market to everywhere. And the way that they were dressed and tempted from so much in and out, in, inside society, out everywhere, the Prophet, he said that the Prophet wouldn't have said, as Aisha radiallahu anha said, that they shouldn't go to the masjid. In fact, the Prophet would have said in his interpretation that women should be obligated to go to the masjid because this is where women are going to make that change. This is where women are going to make that connection. So yes, we are going to see aspects from even statements of our greatest scholars where we take pause and we're trying to understand what that really means. And that's completely fine. That is, alhamdulillah, part of our legacy, a part of our history. But then we're also going to find people who take one opinion 
And maybe that opinion is from a more recent scholar and maybe it's based on a particular interpretation. And that's okay too, great. But there are other people who don't even take opinions. They literally take a misunderstanding that is based in their own misunderstanding of women's roles in Islam. And then they make that policy. That's the problem. When it becomes your masjid policy and then you think this is reflective of all of Islam's discussion on this issue. And that is so rampant in Muslim communities in the West. And that is why we have so much misunderstanding. And really, the only way that we can change this is by educating ourselves, by creating spaces for women to be resident scholars of Masajid, so that inshallah, we can start a revival. Create, not start, we have a revival, alhamdulillah. But here where we are, increase in our revival of going back to the prophetic society, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, in which women were actively given access and were actively teaching, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Ameen. May Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the tawfiq to emulate that. Assalamu alaikum everyone. This is Editing Sara coming back to you uh, sometime after we recorded this episode with Sheikha Maryam. We ran out of time to discuss with her and to continue our conversation, um, but we did actually want to insert a clip of her recitation, of her reciting the Qur'an, um, so that everybody could listen to it, um, and also to let you all know that you can hear more of her recitations and the other sisters who are reciting and sharing their stories and their experiences with studying and teaching the Qur'an um, through the Four Mothers campaign, which is all located on Sheikh Maryam's Instagram. So we're going to include information about how to follow her um, in the podcast notes. But with that, we want to thank you all for listening. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Tabarakalladhi biyadihi al-mulku wa huwa ala kulli shay'in qadir Alladhi khalaqal mawta wal hayata liyabaluakum ayyukum ahsanu amala وهو العزيز الغفور الذي خلق سبع سماوات طباقا ما ترى في خلق الرحمن من تفاوت فارجع البصر هل ترى من فطور ثم ارجع البصر كرتين ينقلب إليك البصر خاسئا وهو حسير ولقد زينا السماء الدنيا بمصابيح وجعلناها رجوما للشياطين وأعتدنا لهم عذاب السعير وللذين كفروا بربهم عذاب جهنم وبئس المصير إذا ألقوا فيها سمعوا لها سمعوا لها شهيقا وهي تفور تكاد تميز من الغيظ كلما ألقي فيها فوج سألهم خزنتها سألهم خزنتها ألم يأتكم نذير قالوا بلى قد جاءنا نذير فكذبنا وقلنا قالوا بلى قد جاءنا نذير فكذبنا وقلنا ما نزل الله من شيء إن أنتم إلا 
تَبَتْ وُجُوهُ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا وَقِيلَ هَذَا الَّذِي كُنْتُمْ بِهِ تَدَّعُونَ قُلْ أَرَأَيْتُمْ إِنْ أَهْلَكَنِيَ اللَّهُ وَمَنْ مَعِيَ أَوْ رَحِمَنَا فَمَنْ يُجِيرُ الْكَافِرِينَ مِنْ عَذَابٍ أَلِيمٍ قُلْ هُوَ الرَّحْمَنُ الرَّحْمَنُ آمَنَّا بِهِ وَعَلَيْهِ تَوَكَّلْنَا فَسَتَعْلَمُونَ مَنْ هُوَ فِي ضَلَالٍ قل أرأيتم إن أصبح ماءكم غورا قل أرأيتم إن أصبح ماءكم غورا